I never really found my place in society. And the only way I could make a bridge and bridge this gap was through writing. Writing is what I do instead of belonging. And where do I belong? Yeah, well, I'm Danish and I'm German. So you are also kind of homeless. That was Knoe Roma. And this is Nordic Portraits. Knul Roma is an author, radio host, lecturer and cultural commentator. Following a successful career in advertising, Knul turned his attention to writing, releasing his debut novel in 2006 to rapturous praise from critics. The autobiographical Den som Blinker e Bang for Duln, or as it's known by its English title, Nothing But Fear, earned him the prestigious Gulner Laubert Prize and has since been translated into 15 languages. More recently, Knull released his long-awaited follow-up memoir, Court or Paradis, or Map of Paradise, which was deemed by Belinska upon its release as a modern classic. Knull, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. What a rap. Yeah. <laughs> Knull, I mentioned that your second novel was long-awaited, and I think 12 years qualifies for that statement. Mm. Court or Paradis, you mentioned upon its release that if you were to have a byline for the book, it would be the road to hell. And I just wondered why so. It's actually called so in German because the problem with my titles is that they are very Danish and they can't be translated. So Map of Paradise sounds ridiculous. Cordo or Parties is just, it's very simple. So the German translation is Kartografie der Hölle or Map of Hell. And, um, well, you know, I spent all my life preparing for this one novel about my mother and my German childhood. And I had this dream of getting published by the most prestigious German publisher, Insel Verlag, who publishes all my heroes, all the big German poets, Rilke and Walter Benjamin and Hugo von Hoffmannsthal and all those guys. I was raised in Frankfurt and the publishing house was right around the corner and I swore when I was 13, that that was the goal of my life. And I didn't know that it was impossible. It's an impossible dream. So it kind of destroyed my afterlife. I spent the next 30 years writing without getting published and it was never good enough. And when my mother died, I sat down for 1001 nights and cried my eyes out and wrote this one novel and uh, closed my eyes and aimed at Germany with my one silver bullet and it hit. And that was kind of it. And then I got married, I got children, I had to raise the children, I had to earn money, and the years go by. And I couldn't find the time, the concentration, and I had to do it once again. Because the last thing they told me in Germany was, well, have a nice journey home, Knull Roma. Uh, and um, by the way, just because we published your first novel doesn't mean we'll automatically publish your next novel. So I had to do it once again to to show myself. And I didn't have a whole lifetime for it. So, um, yeah, 12 years went by and it, it, it became more and more problematic. It becomes uh, more and more difficult. So it ended up being a monster like 550 pages, ridiculous. It was like Jesus in the tomb and I had this stone and I had to come out of my own grave 
which was this stone that was getting heavier and heavier. And at last, after nine years' time, I knew what to do. And I rode from 10 o'clock in the evening to 6 o'clock in the morning in the kitchen, drinking white wine and smoking marijuana. And I broke down after three years when I had finished this novel. My wife wanted a divorce, and I was diagnosed with glaucoma. They told me, you're going to get blind in a few years' time, and I completely was done with. And then... Um, the German translation arrives and the funny thing is the international launch of the book was going to be in Leipzig at the International Book Fair. There are 51 countries, 1,500 publishing houses, 250,000 visitors a day and nine days before goal, 12 years of work, the whole thing was abolished because of Corona. <sighs> and then this book arrives and it's called Kartografie der Hölle, The Book of Hell. And it was, and it was just lying there in my empty apartment, the children gone, wife gone, my life gone, my eyes gone, my money gone, everything gone. And it just lies there. And I think the gods are laughing. And I look at it and I was not allowed to check the translation because last time I kind of checked every sentence and had some, you know, things I wanted differently. And all my metaphors dropped from heaven like dead birds. Uh, it was horrible to read. There are so beautiful sentences like, the shadows became longer than the blackbird's song, mm -hmm. which was like, the clouds became longer. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, yeah. So the gods are laughing. And then I was just sitting there in this empty apartment and no money and... This January, I was so in trouble and I was so finished. And, you know, a man in need becomes a singer. Fear makes you sing. When you're desperate, there's no more turning back. You just have to do something. So I sat down and I wrote a novel in two months' time. I thought it was a year. And I was singing for two months and it's the most beautiful thing I've written in Danish prose. It's called The Girl in the Violin. Das Mädchen in der Geige. And it's kind of my girl with the pearl necklace. It's a round pearl of prose, the most simple, beautiful story. And it comes out next month on my birthday. And we'll see. I, I hope this will do some good. Where did that story come from within you? It, well, I've, since I fell asleep in the lap of my mother in Germany in very long operas, in the smell of her perfume, I've always dreamt of writing a novel about classical music and the discipline and the horrors and the sadistic discipline of becoming a virtuoso violinist. And I've written thousands of pages without kind of getting it. I, I, I never found the right movement, the right language. And it's written in first person as a girl, which is kind of interesting because the girls are going to look for stereotypes and shit. But the funny thing is, of course, that the girl in the violin is, of course, me. It's a little girl in, inside of me that's playing the language like a violin. And um, it's an artist novel, yeah? But it's a very easy little plot about a girl when she's five years old. Her father gives her a violin. And tells her that in Austria, there's a little village and they go out into the woods and they knock on the trees. And if there's music in the trees, they build a violin. And then he knocks her on the head and she promised her dad to 
be a good student and become a good violinist. And then she kind of grows together with the violin, which is the violin becomes bigger and bigger and they kind of grow together. And he tells her everything which is inside of you, your dreams, your emotions, your fantasies, you can express them via the violin. The problem is it's so difficult to play the violin that the technique and the discipline to accomplish being able to play the violin takes so much discipline that all the emotions and fantasies and all the life which you are supposed to express in the violin becomes invalid. Mm. And you become more and more emotionally closed off. So it's kind of like an evil little screw where she plays better and better and becomes more and more crippled. And that goes for 200 pages in total pain. And she plays cold notes. There's once in the novel where she becomes drunk and kisses a boy. She swims around in a lake in Vienna called Iris with Julian Racklin, a very famous violinist, and they kiss and she goes home and takes up the violin. And for once she opens her heart and the tones are warm like the sun. And she goes back in the final stages of the novel and has her debut as a solo violinist. And we only heard about her and her father. We never heard about anything else. And then, of course, all the teachers and all the people she meets in the novel. Many East European musicians, of course, in Vienna. And when she then comes out on the stage, she sees amongst the audience all the people that she met through the novel. And in front, her father is sitting. And now she's going to show him how good she is. And then the director turns around to her and says, Oh... You look so much like your mother, and it's her violin. And then she understands her father has turned his own girl into the virtuoso violinist. Hmm. He's, he's turned her into his own wife. And then she breaks completely down and plays ice-cold notes that are falling from the sky like snow. And she's standing in the middle of a musical box and time is turning around and around and she's standing there and the snow is falling. So all the way through the novel, it's all about time, metronomes, everything is counting, counting, counting. And suddenly you understand that the whole novel through, she has just been this little puppet in a musical box. Wow. So I love this little novel. I, I really, I really do. And the language is the violin. And the box is my coffin. And I'm claustrophobically closed in in language and I can't get out. Yeah. You mentioned that from a young age, from as early as 13, you knew you wanted to be a German poet. Yeah. I, I wondered if we could go back to your early years, your <laughs> childhood, where you were growing up in Neukübing Felster, mm. south of Copenhagen. Uh, <laughs> Very south of Copenhagen, yeah. <laughs> and small yeah. island. Yeah. Yeah, a small island, yeah. a regional town. Yeah. And you mentioned in your book that it was an endlessly gray environment for mm -hmm. you and you were clearly an outsider. Can you just share a little bit about the context of that, having grown up with a German mother and a Danish father? Yeah, I mean, gray is not the real word because it's not gray. It's very beautiful down there. But the people God put there aren't that beautiful. And of course, my mother came from a very rich family in East Germany. They were landowners and they lost everything in the Second World War. And uh, she came to this small provincial town in 1950. 
That's five years after the occupation. And she's German and very, very beautiful. And that was not easy. And she found my father and married this guy. I always ask, why did you marry this guy? And she said, well, he had his arms and legs because there were no men left in Germany with arms and legs. And and then 1960, she gives birth to me and it's still not that far away from the war. And I kind of grow up like a Danish boy, you know, running around in the woods and sailing and playing and... You have this very high sky and the lark is singing and it's very beautiful down there. The sea um, and, and the smell of the sea. And then I grew up and inside the house I was growing up like a German child with German traditions, German language and so on. And when I looked out of the window, it was kind of a different landscape. It was with mountains and a German landscape with huge woods and the Brothers Grimm. And it was only when I came into school that I found out that they called me a German pig and my mother a Nazi and so on and so forth. And suddenly I found out where I was and that the culture and the language and the history of my mother was ostracized and they were war criminals and she was guilty and she had to pay. And that is a very, very bad thing for children. And we have so many refugees now, so many foreigners in Denmark and also other countries where the children are experiencing the same thing, that they are being excluded and feel excluded and feel different and feel not accepted. Their language, their history, their culture is not accepted. And when you then have to choose between the surrounding society, which is um, isolating you and ostracizing you, or your own culture, you'll choose your mother's culture and you'll go to war. You'll become even more German. And that also was the case with me. So, so I kind of grew up with a split personality and isolated in some way also emotionally from the society should open itself with possibilities where you can realize your life, you can become somebody, you can find your place in society and have a full and nice life. And for me, I was kind of not getting anywhere, not emotionally and with my identity anyway. So I never really found my place in society. And the only way I could make a bridge and bridge this gap was through writing. Writing is what I do instead of belonging. And where do I belong? Yeah, well, I'm Danish and I'm German. So you are also kind of homeless. So I found out that the only way I could belong and come home was to do the impossible thing and write a Danish novel, which would be published by the most prestigious German <laughs> publishing house. And that would kind of do it for me, yeah? And also kind of for once talk in your own terms about your own culture, about your own language, your own history and your own mother. Because your the surroundings are always giving you an identity, which is not yours. You have no idea who we are. You have no idea who my mother is. My mother was in the German resistance. She was engaged with a man from what was called Rode Kapelle. All her student friends were killed by the Gestapo. She had to flee Berlin in 42, and she barely survived. And now these small town people are calling her a Nazi. And what I wanted was to revenge my mother, or not really revenge, but to show the true colors of who is this woman. And 
I wanted to do it in an eternal prose. So you can't take it away. It's kind of a, a little statue in the middle of this town written in prose and you can't get away with it. You thought you could get away with this, but be careful what you do with the sons of mothers and the only sons of mothers. I have no brothers and sisters, so I was kind of the only one to do this. I actually went so far when I was in advertising and made a lot of money. I went into an auction house where the drum of the city was being auctioned. You know, in old days, they went with this huge drum and told the news. It was from 1658, a bronze drum, big, big one. And I was sitting there on one side and the museum was sitting on the other side. And I just went on bidding until I had more money than they had. And I bought it. And now I have the city's official drum at home. And I told the museum that they can have it for free on one condition. And that is they have to write above the drum, donated by Hildegard Lydia Foll, the name of my mother. And they won't do that. Well, then it's my drum. Yeah. Did your mom ever find peace or come to terms with her lot in life once no, she moved to Denmark? No, no, she was ruined. She had experienced so many horrors. And then living in this town where she didn't belong, she was a very worldly, cultural woman. She was in pain and she was a very tortured woman. And I was her only uh, company. I spent years and years with my mother, singing, playing, reading poetry. Um, I love her very dearly, but, but she never came to peace, no. Her hands were always kind of fit together like small hand grenades. She could never really relax. Hmm. And her own mother had been badly injured and horribly disfigured. Yeah, she went up in flames. Um, they had this huge estate. And they had a townhouse also in Magdeburg, which of course was one of the cities where the English came back and revenged the bombing of civilians in London and so on by bombing civilian cities. And Magdeburg was one of the places. And she was hiding there in the cellar and a firebomb just dropped on the house. And she was in the cellar, which was filled with gasoline. So she went up in flames. And wartime operations were not that great. So she tried to commit suicide twice by drowning herself, but she survived and she became very old. She became um, a 93. And I loved my grandmother so dearly. And, and, and she was like a mummy. She didn't have any lips, any nose, any ears. Her skin was very burnt. Yeah? And her arms were like a mummy because they had just put skin around it from her legs. And before that, she was one of the most beautiful women in Germany. She looked like a Greek statue, which was why she was married to this <laughs> German uh, uh, guy, you know. He was very influential and rich. And after that, she was, of course, completely disfigured. But, you know, when you're a child, you don't know. So I always thought this is how beauty looks. And I always thought that grandmothers with noses and ears were ugly. <laughs> and when I was in the museums and I saw the Greek statues... I thought, there she is, because they had no noses and no arms. <laughs> so I thought she is classical beauty. And I really, I love her so much. And I always, you know, there was once down there on our island, I took my bicycle and went out to 
kind of muddy lake where you had these fireflies. It's not called fireflies, but it's kind of a firefly. But they light up in the darkness when they mate. And it's not every year that they're there, but they were there. And I plucked them and I went into the garden and I placed them in the garden in the darkness. And I told my grandmother, come to the window. And then she looked out and there I had placed the fireflies like Orion, like the stars on heaven. And I told her, oh, grandma, I love you so much. I'll pluck down the stars from heaven for you. Oh. And I always loved when she was crying. And she was so weepy. She always cried. She was very emotional. Yeah? And so she always cried when we left. And she cried when we visited her. And she cried when I read poetry for her and so on. Yeah. So that was, I always loved when she says, oh, ich bin so gerührt. I'm so moved. Mm. Yeah. You speak with such warmth about your relationship with the women in your family. Yeah. But to contrast that, it felt, when you wrote about your father in your first book, that there's a certain coldness and detachment of this insurance company man that was your father. How would you describe him? Yeah, but that's not really, I mean, in this huge monster novel, it's kind of a slow recognition of who he actually is and was and what he did for us. Because what I didn't know when I was growing up was that he protected us. He was the most regular man who went to work, did his work. There was not one spot on his shirt. He came from a family of people with great fantasies and many depressive, you know, crazy people. And he wanted and made a stable home with security. He was an insurance man. Yeah? He insured everything and went to office for 50 years and kind of gave his life for us. He didn't shine, he made us shine, which is bigger than shining. Uh, that is the guy who made everything possible. And I tried to take care of him when he got old, got dementia, and it was very sad. And he came to Copenhagen and then he fell. And of course, when you're old, and he ended up in dementia. So I sat there with my daddy and he couldn't remember his own wife. He couldn't remember me. He said, who are you? And the most sad thing was that when I at last made it and had my novel published and I became poet laureate and everything that I had told my parents for 40 years, you know, like I'll do this, you know, and I didn't become anything of what I thought. And my parents were for a long time very uh, sad about my existence. And when at last I had something to show, my mother was dead and my father couldn't recognize me. So it never kind of happened, yeah? So he fell and broke his hip. And of course, then he came to the hospital and the hospital system in Denmark is not as they say. He was lying in a bed outside on the floor, yeah? After paying taxes for 70 years, he couldn't even get a room. And he was lying there completely disoriented And I came there and I said, oh, daddy, daddy, and don't be afraid. They know what they're doing. Everything is going to be all right. And then he looked at me with these foggy eyes and said, Knud, Knud, go down into the cabin. Go down into the cabin. And I knew where I was. I was on the sea because we sailed when I was a kid. We sailed every summer. He was a very good sailor. And once we went from Greno, from Jutland, to a small island called Anholt. And there you have a very big sea. 
and there was a storm coming up. But not only a storm, uh, what's it called in Okane? Hurricane? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that is very, very dangerous. And I could see the whirlwinds across the sea. And I saw this insurance man who always was discreet. He was the solid rock. Yeah. I saw him put on his lifeline, go on board and take down the sails so that you only have a very small sail. And, and then he told me to go down into the cabin. And then I looked at this man who sat at the rudder and kind of danced the waves, huge, I mean, like buildings, great big buildings of waves, how he was riding these waves with an infinite security and got us to this island. And people were standing at the harbor and looking at him and he took the sail and they applauded him. And we went out and I saw a boat with three masts go down, you know, and they were out and they fetched them in. And I was lying in this boat and the wind and the, the, the everything, I was sleeping there. And next day I woke up on this island and you had a complete blue sky with um, seagulls and that was Anhalt. And, um, and he saved our lives. And I always remember, if there's paradise, when I die, I'll open my eyes on this island with my parents. And now he was lying there in the hospital and he was out on sea again and I couldn't save him. He drowned in his own lungs with water. So um, I, I didn't, he, he was drowning in the sea and it was very tragic. But, um, and I'm called the same thing as him. So it was when I saw him sit there in the old people's home, uh, I could see my own name there. So I know what's coming. Was that, one of the first times you really started to think seriously about your own mortality? No. <laughs> I haven't thought about anything else since I was born. Really? I kind of live in the opposite direction. I live from my grave and backwards. I know time is running out and I know how thin the ice is. And I know that absence is uh, more encompassing and more fundamental than presence. You have no absolute consciousness of yourself. You have no idea where you are, who you are, and you can never have absolute presence. So we are kind of shadows that are being thrown by a sun behind our backs. We live in a kind of suspension. You don't know. You'll never know. And truth doesn't exist. It's just a human way of thinking, finding the truth, finding reason. There is no reason. The universe just works. It has no goal, no reason. We are looking for goals and making reasons, but that's a human endeavor. Language is just a system of symbols. It has nothing to do with existence. Life just happens and life just wants to live. It has no, no reason. It just functions. So um, I'm very conscious that our days are counted. I always thought you can't get anything out of your life but you might be able to put something into life, which is worth it. Hmm. Children or whatever, you know, friends, good deeds, <laughs> nice pieces of art, music, whatever, you know. Do you reflect now and feel like those seminal works that you've published are something that work towards a legacy that you can be proud of? You know, I really don't care. When you're dead, you're dead. 
all this afterlife shit is really ridiculous. It's narcissistic idiocy. And everything ends. <laughs> Eternity doesn't exist, so who cares? I mean, we might survive 100 years and we'll only have cockroaches again. Or we might survive a few thousand years and you'll still have cockroaches. Or you might survive a million years and the sun will, in a billion years, the sun will uh, come to an end. So it's really, you know, it's foam on the sea, thinking like that. Sure, that may be true on a very macro level, but looking at it on a smaller generational scale, the stories that we tell ourselves as humans yeah. helps I just wondered if you take pride or comfort in the knowledge that your writings will help yours and perhaps more pertinently your mother's story live on. I don't really know. I think that what makes me sad is that uh, my divorce has kind of estranged myself from my children, which is the saddest thing you can experience is that your own children really don't care about you. Of course, they don't when they get into puberty and they get old enough, they'll leave you anyway. But I'm sad that I don't have these years together with my children that I can tell them stories and tell them about my family history and kind of share memories with them. And that would be a good thing. Yeah, um, that's, that's sad. It's kind of, you know, they don't know the paintings on the walls. They don't know where we come from, who we are, German culture, philosophy, music, whatever you want to share with your kids. That's sad. That's kind of the saddest thing you can experience. But then again, you know, children don't really care. They want to make their own stories, their own history, their own music. So I know that at least my first novel will never disappear. I know that for sure. It's really... It's in most people's homes and it's in the curriculum in the school and it's my little bit for eternity, but yeah. Is it overly simplistic to say that you had a, a happy family life and then entered this tunnel vision period where you just had to hammer out this book, Court or Paradise, and work like a Trojan every mm. night and then as a result sacrifice the relationship with your wife and your children? Was that the- I didn't that, sacrifice it, but it became the price. It, it wasn't my intention. My intentions were good, <laughs> but my marriage was never happy. It mm. just got worse and worse. It should have ended before it started. We should never have been married. I mean, I'm an intellectual monster, an academic monster, and she's a violinist who never opened a book. She's very literal. I'm very metaphorical. I'm joking all the time, and she only laughs if I hit myself. So it was one big fight for 20 years and which is sad for the children because they've grown up with parents arguing all the time, which is not nice. I mean, we've argued to a degree which should have given them PTSD. Children, they're lying in their beds and they're listening to these horrible voices, parents hating each other. That's horrible. And if I could undo it, I would. But in that situation, you are unconscious, you're blind, and you're in the grips of your situation and your emotions, and you're not on top of it. So I would love if I could erase that and try once again. Also, because like everybody else, I wanted to be the perfect father, making waffles, lighting candles, reading Narnia and uh, Harry Potter and Tolkien and going to the woods and sailing with them and looking at stars and s stuff like that. 
But I, I do hope that the foundation of their emotional life is good and solid and filled with love and care. Do you have any contact with them today? Well, they live 300 meters away, but they're living with their mother and they have their school, their friends and their own gaming computers. And they really don't think about that their father is sitting 300 meters from there and is growing blind and is living alone. I don't see them very much, no. And the horror is that that you're not supposed to see your children, to meet up with your children, to do something. You're supposed to live with your children and you're kind of living parallel lives because they're living their own lives, but you're living together. So it's like, come on, do your homework, go to bed, uh, how's life, say hi to your friends. And the other thing doesn't work, you know. Oh, we'll go to the cinema. Then you go to a cinema and they go home. And home is not where you're living. So it becomes very perverted. It's unnatural. And it's not natural that I have to sit with a 12-year-old girl for hours and talk with her. You know, you don't talk for hours with a 12-year-old girl. She has her own interests. Talk for three hours about streaming Minecraft games on Twitch. Uh, you, you grow insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she's not interested in Heidegger or Dylan Thomas, you know, so it's it's not supposed to be that way. Can we talk for a moment about your eyesight and the diagnosis? Can you just take us through? Which of them? I have many. <laughs> well, when did you first, when were you first confronted with this reality that you were losing your eyesight? Well, I, I finished the novel and I could pay my taxes. And I was kind of relieved. I didn't get any money out of it. I got half a million kroner in front and I used that for taxes. My wife had used too much money. And then the German publisher said, not good enough. And I had four months to do something about it. Because if Insel Verlag wouldn't publish it, the whole book is about how do it destroy your own life by wanting to be published by Insel Verlag and now they don't want to publish it. It was kind of all on one card. So I went down to my house in the countryside, which I love dearly, the most beautiful place on earth. I searched for that house for 30 years. It was like, it was magic. Seaside, woods, completely darkness, complete alone. And my boat was just right outside the house. And I mean, the beauty of beauties. Yeah. But in January, it's very, very dark down there. There are no neighbors. You know, you can see the stars and it's completely quiet. And, and I was driving through the woods. And for the first time in my life, it, it was raining like shit and I couldn't see. And suddenly I drive into the ditch and I went, oh, fuck, you know, it's not funny. And then I um, started walking in the wood and after one, two minutes, I lost my way. And I was standing in darkness and rain and I couldn't see. It was a wall of darkness. And then I saw a little light, which is where the, the guy who was um, taking care of the woods, his house there. And I went for the light and suddenly I'm in mud. And I know I can't move now because the mud there is thousands of years old. It's like I take one step and you might just plumb in. So I can't move. And that's the first, I don't know, have you ever tried to scream for help? Like all your lungs. No. Just scream, help, help. And I was screaming help, you know. 
And suddenly I hear this voice going, no, what the fuck are you doing? And he comes out there with a huge light and I'm just five meters from the road. And he drives me to my house and I get the car up and I, and then I'm, I had lost my spectacle. So I go to the optician and you have to look, you know, at these letters. And suddenly I realize I can't see letters at all with my right eye. And he says, you have to go to the doctor. I go to the doctor and they look at my eyes and then this, this gravestone of a clinically detached physician, doctor, says, well, you have glaucoma. It's something in your genes. You have always had it, but you have been not diagnosed in time. You have no nerves left in your right eye and you only have a few left in your left eye. You'll have to take this medicine three times a day and good luck with the rest of your life. And I go like, but you can, for sure, you can operate this. No, 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 there's no cure. And I go like, but, but uh, am I growing blind? Yeah. When? We can't say. In a year, two years, we don't know. And I tell him, well, one of the sentences in my last novel goes, when it grows dark on Falster, your eyes are being picked out. That's how dark it is. And he goes like, well, that's a prophecy. And then I come home and all this fighting in my marriage, all this trying to get money in the daytime, right at nighttime, all this stress. I haven't slept. I've drunk too much, too much marijuana. And now this diagnosis of growing blind. So I break down and then my wife tells me I can't stand this anymore. I want to get divorced. And she throws me out. So I'm standing on the street. And then I had four months trying to save the novel. So I was sitting in apartments with friends in their children's rooms when they're not there. You know, they're all divorced. And in a, a format of 2024 font, I was cutting 150 pages and rewriting the whole thing, trying to save the novel. And then four weeks before it has to get published, I do send to the publishing house and I go home and I beg my wife, please don't, don't get divorced. Don't take my family away from me. I've never had a family. I don't have colleagues. You are my only relation. You're my fortress. You're the only thing I have intimacy with. And my children don't please. And she says no. And then I break completely down and I get a reactive psychosis and I get into there are some places you don't want to see. And one of them is emergency rooms in psychiatry. They are just the trash cans of society. And you're not going to be cured there. You will never get out. And I go home again and I beg her and she says no. And then I just empty my mobile saying, help me, help me, help me. And my publisher turns up after 20 minutes who is this? He's my brother in arms. Your Danish publisher. Yeah. He has this, he's like a, he's a hipster, you know. <laughs> he has huge glasses, an enormous beard, a cowboy hat, and these, you know, like flip-flops. And he takes me and he says, come on, Knud. And he takes my car and he drives me to North Zealand. And there's the only private psychiatric hospital in Denmark, which is small, safe, nice, people in normal clothes, they say your name, you can have a little apartment 
for yourself. It's in a park. It's safe. It's nice. And my publishing house paid 14 days. It's very expensive. And that's my relationship with my publishing house, which is very, very rare these days. Mm. They waited 12 years for my second novel and they never flinched. They had confidence in me. And there I then, you know, had antipsychotic medicine and anxiety reducing medicine and I was completely destroyed. I had intense paranoia, anguish, and I felt guilty and I felt like a criminal. It was really horrible. And I had to do, you know, the novel is coming out, I have to do interviews. So I had to invite all the journalists to this <laughs> asylum. And I mean, I used to be a quite famous advertising guy and everybody always thinks it's a stunt. Mm. It's an advertising stunt. It's not a stunt. And it was not funny because it's degrading. But I thought, and it's humiliating, but I thought, well, maybe I can do some good because I can show everybody that everybody can and will break down. And you will, everybody will come to a point in his life where he can't manage where it's too much, whether it's too much to drink, too many drugs, whether it's divorce. I always thought that I was a German soldier made out of steel, that I can take anything and I broke. Everybody can break. And I thought, well, then I might do something good and talk also about how the Danish public psychiatry runs and that it has to have more funds, more public attention because you turn your back on people who have mental breakdowns. You demonize them, just like foreigners or Germans and old people and whatever. Yeah, And, and I had to go on tour the same day that I get out of the asylum and then tour for a year. And I don't have a place to live. And then the divorce and then the corona hits. So I have no income either. Yeah? So it, it, I was hanging in my nails but I'm okay now. And I've, I've taken the, the fear. You know, when you are told that you're growing blind and I have only 10% left in my left eye, I'm completely blind when it grows dark and the light is fading and time is running out, but I have, I have grips on it. Hmm. Do you have hope? No, but Kafka said there is hope, but not for us. Um, hope for what? Hmm. Um, I'll live on, you know. The horrible thing is that I'm going to die blind. And I, that's not a comfortable thought because you'll get ill and you'll be in the hands of others and you don't know where they'll, <laughs> where they'll bring you, you know. It's, I mean, horribly, I can already imagine lying in a hospital bed and not being able to see being in a hospice and dying and you can't see. That's ridiculous. That's kind of being buried before dying. But that's how it is. You describe yourself as being this German soldier of steel. You very much have run your own course in your career and, and through your writing. I have never had a career. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious just about how you have come to terms with the fact that you are, for the first time in your life, going to need to rely on other people and be vulnerable to that. Is that something that you feel more comfortable with now? No, I hate it. I mean, it's always been 
that I can take care of myself, I can do what I want, I can be what I want, I can say what I want, and I'll earn my own money. I don't want to be dependent on anybody. And the Danish social welfare system doesn't work. It's an illusion. The moment you are in need, you'll fall, and you'll fall big time. You'll lose your apartment, you'll lose your civil existence, you'll lose your car, you'll lose everything. And your ability to control your surroundings and control your life. When you're a child, you're crawling around. Then you can walk. Then you have a little tricycle. Then you have a real bicycle. Then you have a maybe a moped or something. Then you have a car. Then you can take the train. You can take a plane. So your territory is expanding. My territory <laughs> is going the other way because I can't drive a car. I can't drive a bicycle. I have difficulties walking on the sideways. So you become isolated and you become passive. You, you, you can't do what you want. I lost my house in the countryside. I can't come to the countryside because you can't go there with public transport. There's no train. The train station ends in a fucking city. You can't get out of the city. I'm kind of claustrophobic, imprisoned in the city in my apartment, which is ridiculous. Of course, I've always been kind of, I mean, I worked in jungle capitalism and I've always had the impression that I'm surrounded by wolves. If you fall over on the street, they'll take your shoes. I've had a very cynical and unpleasant idea about society and humans. And I must say that these three years I've experienced something very nice and that is that I'm actually surrounded by very caring people, by very empathetic human beings, that we are first and foremost not individuals. We are families, we are groups, and we help each other out. And the care and the love and the you know empathy of people that I've experienced is a really, really um, miraculous experience which makes you very happy about things, that people are not greedy, evil, egoistical, warmongering, but sharing helpful people. I remember once I was sitting in the train, I had a phone conversation with my wife and I started crying. I was so sad. I mean, she has torn my heart out. Everything, my whole future, everything that I worked for, I've lost. My future is my past. I don't have a future anymore. All that I wanted, I got, and then I lost it. And I can't get it back. It's like I'm just an echo of something that was. And I was having this conversation and I just started crying in the train. And suddenly there's a Kleenex on my table coming through the air, you know, and landing on the table. And I was like, wiping my eyes and I can't see very well. And then we are at a station and people are going out. And then somebody, while he passes me, pats me on the shoulder and leaves. I never saw the person. And I found out there's a Danish saying, when you are in greatest need, help is the nearest. The greater the need, the nearer the help. And we always have these sayings and we just say them, but we don't really put any attention to them and we don't even know why. I always ask, why is it? Why, when you're in absolute need, 
help is there. Why? Why should it be like that? Give me a reason. What's the meaning of this? And nobody can answer you until you are there. Mm. Because you only ask for help at the point where you need help. Before that, you'll help yourself. You're not going to ask other people because it's embarrassing. You're getting into guilt, uh, you know, that you, you own them something. And it's not something you do. It's only if you can't help yourself and you need help, you'll ask for help. And the funny thing is you'll get help. <laughs> People like giving help. It's an urge. And that experience is very dear to me. Yeah? You know, when I lost my country house, which kind of was the epitome of my achievements, was this little house. And when I found out, I found out I can't drive anymore. And I was stranded there because I was not going to get into that car and maybe kill somebody. You know, it's over. You can't drive this car. I can't drive it to Copenhagen. It's over. I'll get into a car crash. It's too dangerous, this thing. So I'm stranded. And I have these 12 friends that I've had for 40 years, and we are mailing each other every day. We have this little mail group. You know, it's very old-fashioned, not a message board, but saying, good morning, how are you? And in the beginning, it was kind of a partying thing, and now it's we're getting older. It's kind of a comforting thing, and we are helping each other out, and we are all having troubles with our children, with our health, with our economy. And we are there for each other, which is, if I have one thing to tell my kids, be a good friend and get good friends because they are the ones that are meaning the difference in your life. Everything else doesn't matter. Career, who cares? Friends, that's the main goal of your life. And I was sitting there and I was completely shattered. I'm going to lose my house and I can't even get out of here. And my wife didn't care, you know. So I wrote a mail saying I'm fucked. And five minutes after, my first friend, Mass, says, stay put, Knoll, I'll come Sunday. And it goes like ding, ding, ding. And they all tell me, stay put, Knoll, we'll be here. And then in the morning on a Sunday, I suddenly see 10 cars coming. And all my friends are coming and they have boxes and they completely empty the house, put it into the boxes, clean it up, drive back and forth and throwing things out, which it's half an hour just getting there. And they had to know back and forth with stuff. And they take a photo of me while I, for the last time, lock the door. And I sit next to a guy who then drives my car to Copenhagen and they make this chain and they take all the boxes into the cellar. And they pat me on the shoulder and say, have a nice day, Knoll. And they walk away. And I always thought this house was the most prestigious thing in my life that I valued the most after my wife and children, of course. But my friends are on the other side of the scale and they uh, balance, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, yeah. It's very pathetic, all this. No, no, it's not. And I, I thank you for sharing it with me. Mm. I wondered... When you talk about growing up in the countryside and in many ways feeling excluded due to your German heritage, do you think this suspicion of the other is less prevalent in Danish society today or is it a trait that still runs deep? I don't know. <laughs> Every generation is 10% IQ higher. 
more educated, more versatile. The consciousness and horizon of children that are 12, 14 years now is enormous, you know, because of social media, of course, and the internet. Every movie ever made, they can see. Every song ever made, they can hear. They can have conversations with people in Tokyo and New York, and it's insane. They have a global consciousness. They are not being stopped by borders. And I think that all this nationalism, racism, sexism is evaporating, I hope. And it doesn't look like that, but that's the old assholes. We always had the hope of the Arabic Spring, which then turned into tyrannies again and religious dictatorships and stuff like that. But the youth is getting out of that. But they're not the ones who are in charge. But Denmark is a very small country. And we've always, you know, in Denmark you say, Swedes are Germans that are costumed as humans. <laughs> uh, and we have this kind of idea that Denmark is Jesus that is crucified between two robbers, Germany and Sweden. And we have this kind of like puberty where you reject the others, the society, your parents, the grown-ups, they're idiots. But we are the true hip-hoppers or emos. They all look the same in the group, completely mirrored identities inside of the group, but they are radically looking different than their surroundings. That's kind of like Denmark. We have a national identity by rejecting other cultures, other countries, but that's very uh, normal for nations. I mean, Poland and Hungary now and white power Americans, and it's very common way to deal with things. So, <laughs> I, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Well, finally, Knull, if there was one thing you could change about Danish society to make it a better place for your daughters, what would that be? Walter <sighs> um, Benjamin said, when the Messiah comes, he is not going to revolutionize everything. He's only going to put one thing straight and everything will change. It's a perspective will change and you'll suddenly see paradise on earth. It's not the world you'll have to change because the world is okay. It's your perspective on earth, which is going to change the way the earth you see. So if I could change one thing, it would probably be the perspective on why are we alive? What is the deal? What's the reason? what kind of society would you like if you could choose? Is it capitalism, liberalism? Is it the marketplace that is dictating us, economy dictating us? I mean, it's kind of a rotten conspiracy between finances and politics. So, you know, what I would like is to change the perspective on life. Why are you here? What's the deal? Why don't we live in a different way? Why don't we make a different society with other goals? Not producing more and more commodities, you know, uh, producing, consuming, producing, consuming. Everything is about working, money, economy. It's dictating humans. But it should be the other way around, that we dictate the kind of society that we want. How do you live your lives the nicest way? How can we keep our families together, the generations together? 
Why are we not sitting with old people, parents, young people in bigger families? How do we spend our time? Why do we put our children into institutions? They are half a year old, one year old, and they're put into an institution. And then the rest of their life is institutionalized until they get into the marketplace. It's like from when you're one year old until you get, how old, 26, 30 years. It's all institutionalized. For what? For competition, for... Now we have one rationality that has become universal, which dictates everything, which is economic rationality. Everything has to be a means to an end. But why? You know, why music? Well, for its own sake. Not because music is a means to an end. Why sex? Not because you want to get pregnant and have children. For the fun of it, for the hell of it. Why mathematics? Not as an means to an end, but because mathematics are fascinating, are enlightening, are the brickstones of the universe, do things for their own sake and stop instrumentalizing everything as a means to an end, which always is profit. So I would like to change the rationality of how we organize society and our lives and the perspective on life. And that is actually what you can do with education. So you don't have to revolutionize everything. You just have to revolutionize your way of thinking. Mm. Well, you've definitely challenged my way of thinking today. And I just want to thank you, Knull, for sharing your story so openly and honestly with me. Yeah, well, well, uh, thanks for your time and your ears. And sorry for everything. <laughs> It's a real pleasure. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.